newly proposed climate rules and their impact on supply chains. The Postal Service fights back and industrial racking enjoys a growth spurt. Pull up a chair and join us as the editors of DC Velocity discuss these stories as well as news and supply chain trends on this week's Logistics Matters podcast. I am Dave Maloney, I'm the Group Editorial Director at DC Velocity. Welcome. Logistics Matters is sponsored by TGW. TGW is a leading global systems integrator for automated warehouse solutions. They're a one-stop provider, designing, manufacturing, implementing, and maintaining end-to-end fulfillment solutions for Urban, GAP, JASCO, TVH, and more. Distribution network management is becoming all the more challenging. Master the unpredictable with TGW, a leading global systems integrator. Visit tgw-group.com for more information. As usual, our DC Velocity senior editors, Ben Ames and Victoria Kickham, will be along to provide their insights into the top stories of this week. But to begin today, many may not be aware, but new climate risk disclosure rules may soon go into effect, and they could have some significant effects on supply chains. To find out the details and what they all mean, here's Victoria with today's guest. Victoria? Thanks, Dave. Uh, Our guest today is Alex Sarek. Alex is Chief Marketing Officer at procurement software firm Evalua. And as you say, he's here to discuss proposed SEC climate risk disclosure rules and their impact on supply chains. Welcome, Alex. Great. Thanks for having me. So the Securities and Exchange Commission's proposed climate risk disclosure rule could have far-reaching effects across the supply chain. As I understand it, it requires publicly traded companies to disclose to investors how their operations affect the climate and contribute to carbon emissions. Can you explain what this is all about, when the rules may take effect, and and tell us what your role is in in helping people understand this? Sure, so there's been growing interest in emissions coming from business, both as far as their impact on the environment uh, and also the potential risk to the business results themselves. Um, but there really hasn't been any consistent standards for measuring or reporting on emissions, and, and that's led to a lot of confusions, inconsistencies, and also a lot of claims of greenwashing. So the SEC rules are really intended to address these concerns, uh, by most notably by one, mandating that all public companies report their total emissions, uh, and then second, defining standard metrics for them to do so. I think it's important to note that it's not setting specific targets or any kind of fines for certain thresholds. This is really just about transparency. Uh, The rules were aimed to take effect as early as March, so they've been shifting around quite a bit. Uh, There's still some limbo on it, and as of right now, it could potentially kick in April or even later. Uh, There's just ongoing review of some of the public commentary uh, to the initial um, SEC guidelines that they published, uh, and there's some legal challenges that have also been holding it up uh, from having a definitive date. Uh, and my company, I value well, we provide a cloud-based platform that helps businesses manage their spend and their suppliers. Uh, it helps with a range of objectives from improving supply resilience, profitability, and compliance by improving visibility into and collaboration with the supply chain. But when it comes to ESG and carbon emissions specifically, uh, we have an environmental impact center that helps companies identify exactly what they buy, pull in third-party information such as carbon emission factors so they can baseline where they are today, set targets, and then work with suppliers to actually lower them over time. Great. Thank you. 
I, can you provide some maybe a little bit of specifics about how it will affect, you know, companies up and down the supply chain, our our listeners and readers? And I believe it, it kind of gets into the so-called scope three emissions. Those come into play here. Can you talk a little bit about the, the, those as well? Yeah, absolutely. And it's important to understand that this is actually going to affect businesses of all size, not just public companies. Uh, and to do that, to really understand how, it really comes down to three types of business emissions, the categories that are involved in the SEC rule. Uh, there's a scope one emissions, and that's what a company produces directly through its own operations. And there's scope two, uh, which are what a company causes indirectly through the energy that it purchases. Uh, the first and second can be handled by the companies themselves, but where it gets tricky is the scope three. Uh, and while the rules officially only apply to public companies, scope three emissions include emissions from the full depth of the supply chain, uh, everywhere from resource extraction to production and transport. Uh, and for the average business, scope three actually reflects over 70% or so of their emissions. So any serious assessment of a business has to include the supply chain. Before a business to be able to report a scope three emissions, it has to require suppliers to provide details of their own operations and that of their own supply chains, uh, regardless of their supplier size. So in effect, that means the businesses of any size are going to have to assess and report on emissions to some extent. So this is designed, it sounds like, to, to help people, obviously, you know, or give some guidance in terms of how to do this. What are some of the most important aspects of sort of tracking, measuring, and managing this information, and, and who should be doing it in a company? So there are a few key elements, and it really starts with first just knowing who all the businesses suppliers are, uh, which sounds really basic, uh, but the reality is most public companies don't actually know who all of their suppliers are or everything that they purchase. So they first have to get control of that. Then they need to have visibility into the sub-tier, so who their suppliers are dependent on to provide them the goods and services uh, that they're purchasing. Uh, that's the real foundation. And then you get into the crux of it, which is needing to assess emissions at the category, at the supplier, and the product level. Uh, so you can report on it. You can identify the high-emitting categories and suppliers, uh, develop and execute on collaborative savings plans, uh, carbon savings plans with those suppliers, and drive more sustainable buying behavior uh, with things like low carbon options added to catalogs. Uh, and as far as who really needs to drive this, procurement really plays the critical role in executing because it's really the function that's the linchpin to the suppliers. Uh, so they're absolutely essential in any uh, successful effort. Can it be tracked and managed in, in an ERP system or similar? So if, you know, if you're a company, you're a supplier, I mean, you're going to be asked for this kind of information. How do you kind of get a handle on that? Yeah, so it's not really something that the ERP systems uh, can serve as. Uh, you know, they really work as the critical kind of financial and in some cases, like for manufacturers, the planning systems. Uh, but mm -hmm. they're inherently inward focused, you know, internal focused systems. So they don't really suffice for this kind of reporting that really needs to look outside the organization. Uh, and that's why you see companies that are relying on specialists and you know, spend supplier management platforms like iValuable to do this. You know, these type of platforms serve as the supplier backbone for an organization uh, like the ERPs do for their financials. Uh, so they manage all the reporting and engagement with the suppliers, uh, which is what's really needed to assess, monitor, and reduce carbon emissions. So proposals like this are often controversial, and I think that's been the case here with the limited uh, kind of research I've done on this. What has the industry reaction been thus far, you know, from, from your perspective and, and in dealing with it um, with your clients? Yeah, so so far what we've seen is a generally positive reaction uh, with a couple key areas of concern. I think it's positive in that 
you know, finally providing some consistency on the metrics to be used, which have really been all over the place, and that creates a lot of frustration for companies as well as people trying to assess them. Uh, and there's general agreement that reporting on scope one and two are both valuable and achievable. Uh, the concern is really focused around the scope three issues. Uh, because it's not fully within the company's control. I mean, very few organizations really have transparency into everyone that they buy from, like I mentioned, uh, and they're going to require input from their suppliers. They're not themselves obligated to report emissions uh, and may not be that you know, savvy at doing so. Uh, so effectively, businesses are going to be held liable for reporting that they can't fully control. Uh, and in particular, there's been pushback on one of the stipulations here, which is the need to report on any source of emissions totaling 1% or more of the total. Uh, that's a real concern, and a lot of the criticism is that that's too low a threshold. Uh, and there's also been some criticism about not having enough time to adapt kind of processes and systems to comply and you know, asking for more time. Do you think this change, um, you know, will help improve efforts by supply chain companies? I'm talking across the supply chain to reduce carbon emissions and really become better stewards of the environment. It sounds like it's a step in that direction, but I'm just wondering if you, you think if it if it goes through as planned, is is that where you hope it ends up? I do. I think it's definitely moving. What it will do is it's going to move carbon emissions reporting from really kind of a nice to have uh, to a must have for organizations. Uh, and that's automatically going to move it up the board level list of priorities. Uh, and that's going to help drive investment in the right systems, the talent, and the processes to make it happen. Uh, so ultimately, I think it will be beneficial. Uh, hopefully, they can come up with something that's you know, achievable and palatable. Alex, thank you so much for being with us today. We really appreciate your insight on this topic. No problem. It's great to, to be on, as always. Yeah, thank you. We've been talking with Alex Sarek of Evalua. Back to you, Dave. Thank you, Alex and Victoria. Now let's take a look at some of the other supply chain news from the week. And Ben, you reported this week on efforts by the Postal Service to rein in fraud. Can you share the details? Yeah, glad to. Uh, really, anyone who uses the Postal Service is, is familiar with what happens when you make a mistake on the address or maybe the amount of postage at the stamps you put on a, a box. Um, you know, the service just marks it return to sender and brings it back. Uh, and, after, you know, we've all made that mistake, I think, um, you know, maybe you didn't realize a friend had moved or you put a postcard stamp on a letter or something like that. But this week, we learned that the USPS is struggling with uh, a related kind of challenge, but it's a surge in the use of counterfeit postage. So that's been rising in recent years, apparently. And the post office now says that it's planning to fight back. Uh, it says fake postage is an intentional effort to defraud the Postal Service of the funds that it needs to provide services to the public. So that, that makes sense because, uh, you know, they, they didn't pay for this, uh, you know, parcel to be carried and delivered. USPS is a government agency, of course. So yesterday it filed a notice in the Federal Register about this change. What it said is that when USPS finds an item with fake postage, it will not deliver it to the address or return it to the sender, but rather it'll treat it as abandoned. And what that means is that the package might be, it can be opened and disposed of at the Postal Service's discretion. Uh, that's interesting. And of course, in this e-commerce age, we all receive a lot of parcels in the mail. So what does this mean for the customers who are expecting a delivery, maybe by an e-commerce company that they bought something from? Uh, great question. That's what came to mind. The uh, the Postal Service um, says that they addressed that specifically, and they said that consumers would simply lose any online items that they had purchased that were falsely mailed. 
and that they would have to quote seek recourse from the vendor uh, so that means they'll have to call up the person who sold it to them and uh, and, and complained to that to, uh, to, to to the vendor there uh, the postal service did not share statistics on how many packages and parcels we're talking about here uh, but in its filing with the Federal Register, it said that the use of counterfeit postage has increased substantially, and that was especially on packages. So this is more about, you know, parcels than letters. Uh, it said that typically uh, one of the challenges here is that those boxes with fake postage do not actually have a valid return address. They're either purposefully inaccurate, uh, or maybe it's a return address that's not related to the true mailer. So they couldn't return it anyway. Uh, but finally, uh, they said the service, uh, what, what they're proposing to do to make the change uh, would be beginning on April 1st. So uh, that's you know only six weeks away or something here. So keep your eyes on, on, uh, on those packages. If they don't arrive, it won't be an April Fool's joke. Um, it looks like this could be the new policy. Yeah, it certainly does seem that way. And I guess it just emphasizes the need to have tracking information available on packages so you can locate where what happened to it and go back to the source if necessary. Exactly. That'd be good advice. Thanks, Ben. Glad to. And Victoria, you wrote this week about their growing demand for industrial racking. What are the outlooks for the market for the next few years? Yeah, Dave, that's right. So although logistics industry growth is set to moderate this year, reports show that demand for industrial storage racks will remain on the upswing over the next uh, few years. The market for industrial racking systems is set to grow from $11 billion last year to $16 billion by 2029, a roughly 6% compound annual growth rate. And that's according to market research from a company called Fortune Business Insights. They actually released that data last year, uh, late last year. Global demand for warehouse space has been driving the trend, and that's especially prevalent here in the United States where accelerating e-commerce activity has spurred the need for more modern warehouses and distribution centers. Modern seems to be a key word there. Um, how does that figure into demand for storage racks? Yeah, that's right. Well, it reflects the move toward more modern facilities that incorporate uh, robotics and automation in particular. The report cites technology advances and demand for automated warehouses as key drivers of industrial rack growth. If you think about it, new project implementations these days often at require racking for automated storage and retrieval systems as one example. And there's also demand for storage rack systems that can integrate with other types of uh, robotic solutions. I'm actually working on a story for this about an uh, about this for an upcoming issue of DC Velocity. And I've been speaking with rack manufacturers and others about demand for more flexible rack solutions that integrate seamlessly with today's um, automated warehouses. This is the case um, in all industries, but this story will look at some examples uh, from the pharmaceutical and healthcare markets. Uh, that story will appear in our April issue, so readers interested in this topic can uh, check that out uh, in the spring. That sounds good, Victoria. Thank you. You're welcome. We encourage listeners to go to dcvelocity.com for more on these and other supply chain stories. And also check out the podcast notes section for some direct links on the topics that we discussed today. And again, our thanks to Alex Sarek of Evalua for being our guest today. We welcome your comments on this topic and our other stories. You can email us at podcast at dcvelocity.com. We also encourage you to subscribe to Logistics Matters at your favorite podcast platform. Our new episodes are uploaded each Friday. Speaking of subscribing, check out our sister podcast series. It's called Supply Chain in the Fast Lane. It's available wherever you get your podcasts. 
And a reminder that Logistics Matters is sponsored by TGW. TGW is a leading global systems integrator for automated warehouse solutions. They're a one-stop provider designing, manufacturing, implementing, and maintaining end-to-end fulfillment solutions for Urban, GAP, JASCO, TVH, and more. Learn more about how to improve your supply chain operations by visiting TGW at Promat this March in booth S1503. We'll be back again next week with another edition of Logistics Matters. Be sure to join us. Until then, have a great week.